Well, greetings to you all. We had a truly wonderful feast in Zion, and I understand they also had a very fine one in South Africa as well. But today we will continue the Minor Prophet series with Zechariah 9 after a four-month hiatus in time. And I'd like to do a little review first to set the stage before proceeding. In the Minor Prophet series, we first, of course, approached Hosea, Joel, and Amos, which enumerate the problems in a parallel fashion of the church today, followed very closely uh, on the heels of that with the problems that are in physical Israel and what will happen to them as well. So what we see happening in the church, the scattering, the destruction, the famine, the uh, pestilence, everything that's occurring to us spiritually is about to happen in the physical nation as well. And it's through this parallel view of these prophecies that we see a distinct message for the church itself, not only for the physical nations of Israel. And that has been more of our focus in going through these because we need to know what God is doing and what he expects of us under these current conditions that we have in the church, just as physical Israel is going to need to know what is happening to them when the tribulation occurs. So we're in the middle of it today on a spiritual level, and they are about to imbibe of it very shortly. So Hosea, Joel, and Amos set the stage for this by showing the problems that exist, and Joel, of course, talks so much about the day of the Lord showing the time setting that these events of these prophecies will culminate in the day of the Lord and the return of Jesus Christ. So that is the entire setting of these prophecies. They're not something for ancient Israel way back but they are for us today. Obadiah shows one of our principal enemies, that being Edom and Esau, our brother from back in Jacob's day, who is still on the scene and would always bear a grudge against Israel and try to destroy her up until the very end. Uh, then we have Jonah, where one is partially perhaps afraid and partially rebellious to do what God wants done in warning Israel. Uh, Micah then goes into um, some other problems and shows that we have to depart not only from, um, well, looking at it from the church's standpoint, we have to, uh, to remove ourselves from that which is polluted. Uh, and it talks about in chapter 4, the last days. Uh, here we have the context of the end time, and it talks about in the remnant of the church, there will be a remnant of Israel as well, but the remnant of the church is what is first addressed in uh, chapter 4, verse 7 of Micah. And I will make her that halted a remnant, and her that was cast far off a strong nation, and the Lord shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth even forever. So once the return of God's blessings to the latter temple, as we've discussed in previous sermons, begin to occur, it is a blessing that will never depart again, forever and ever, uh, through the return of Christ and on into the world tomorrow, because he is going to take his church, once she is put back together, uh, and, and including those who are dead in Christ, uh, and make them spirit beings, and they will reign with him forever and ever. So let's pick it up here in Micah 4, verse 8, And you, O watchman, King James says tower, but the right word is watchman. And you, watchman of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto you shall it come, even the first dominion. The kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. 
So God is going to begin to restore in the latter temple through Joshua, Zerubbabel, and the remnant of the church, which is faithful, restore his government through them. He says, Now why do you cry out, cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Is your counselor perished? For pangs have taken you as a woman in travail. So the setting is not of the millennium when we have no king. Uh, we certainly don't have our King Jesus Christ here, but on a physical level, before he returns, we also have lost our physical king. And we used quite a few scriptures to show that there is a uh, time here at the end when we have no overall leader. So why do you cry aloud? Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in travail. Notice it's just the daughter of Zion here, not the daughters of Zion, as was referred to in earlier uh, passages, because God selects out of all the daughters of Zion, all those who came out of worldwide, a daughter. He builds a daughter, puts her together through from the remnant or the scattering that occurred from all the daughters. For now shall you go forth out of the city, and you shall dwell in the field, open spaces is the word, there shall you be delivered. There the Lord shall redeem you from the hand of your enemies. So there's a time when we leave this Babylonian system and get away from it. It says, and you shall go even to Babylon. Now, does that mean we go back into the thick of things? There are many scriptures which indicate we're to come out of the midst of Babylon. But if the United States is a type of Babylon today, perhaps we stay in the United States, but we come out of the middle of it. We come out of those areas of Babylon which are uh, most uh, against the ways of God. The big cities, um, maybe even the smaller cities, and come out and dwell in the field or the open spaces. Uh, the Song of Songs talks about the fields and villages. So God wants us out of the middle of what is about to happen. The destruction obviously will come on the cities first because there's where you have the most population control and that's how you control the economy and so on and so forth is through the cities. But there, he says, he will redeem us from the hand of our enemies. Now in verse 11, he says, Also many nations are gathered against you. So there is a conspiracy, a confederacy, that is mentioned in Psalm 83 and in Isaiah 8 and many other places that will come against both the church and physical Israel. Verse 12, But they know not the thoughts of the Lord, neither understand they his counsel, for he shall gather them as the sheaves into the floor. And he tells the church, Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. Now, physical Israel is not going to thresh that confederacy of people who come against her. She is going to be destroyed and taken into captivity. But he tells the daughter of Zion, the church, to rise and thresh. For I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves brass, and you shall beat in pieces many people. And I will cons consecrate their gain to the eternal, and their substance to the Lord of the whole earth. So it does appear that the church is to stand against this world and against the beast and the false prophet and that ultimately their gain and their riches and their wealth are going to be given to Christ. And he goes down and tells us that we're little among the thousands of Judah, uh, chapter 5, verse 2. Uh, and it talks about leadership. Then in verse 5 it says, And this man shall be the peace when the Assyrians shall come into our land. Notice the Assyrian comes into our land. Where is most of the church today? It is in North America, the U.S., and Canada. 
and our land is going to be taken over by the Assyrian, whatever the Assyrian represents in the end time prophecies. And when he shall tread in our palaces, then shall we raise against him seven shepherds and eight principal men, or princes of men. And they shall waste the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod and the entrances thereof. Thus shall he deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and when he treads within our borders. I believe that this is talking about that time when the church stands as a witness against this world, as per Isaiah 41, and when the two witnesses stand against the beast and the false prophet, and fire proceeds out of their mouths, and they call plagues and blood whenever and however they wish, wherever they wish, because this will be a confrontation between the world and the church, just like it was in the days of Pharaoh and Moses. And the two witnesses will be given power to destroy nations not a few, to cut off rain, to do as they please. So it's not that the church takes the back seat here. The church is going to be very, very involved on the international scene. So this is the posture of the church, not simply to run, but to be there. Isaiah 41. Uh, let me turn back there. Isaiah 41 gives the same setting as we just read about. Notice here, he says, Fear not, verse 10. And several places in here he talks about not fearing, to be of good courage in verse 6, the very same language that Haggai uses to describe the remnant of the church, to be of good courage, fear not, and work. Verse 14, Fear not, you worm Jacob, and you men of Israel. I will help you, says the Eternal, and, the, and your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I will make you a new, sharp, threshing instrument, having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains, and beat them small, and shall make the hills as chaff. You shall fan them away, and the wind shall carry them away, and the whirlwind shall scatter them. And you shall rejoice in the Eternal, and shall glory in the Holy One of Israel. So, this is at the latter end, verse 22 points out. This is the time that he's talking about, right here, just before the day of the Lord, and as the day of the Lord uh, comes upon us, the church will rise and be on the international scene in a way that I don't think we've understood or grasped before. So, you get through Micah, Nahum then is a burden against Assyria, and here again in chapter 1, verse 15, it says, Behold upon the mountains the feet of him that brings good tidings, that publishes peace. O Judah, keep your solemn feast, perform your vows, for the wicked shall no more pass through you, he is utterly cut off. So this is a burden against the Assyrian, but he talks a great deal in here about Judah herself, uh, the church in this case, and tells us to keep the solemn feasts of God and to perform the vows that have been put before us. We'll find later in the book of Zechariah, chapter 11, that we haven't performed them and God is going to finish scattering the church. So the instruction here is to do as God has said and keep his feasts whenever they are whenever God says that they are appointed times. Um, and then it talks about the destruction of the Assyrian right here in the same context. Then Habakkuk asks questions about how long this is going to be and uh, expresses his frustrations over it not coming as soon as he wished. But then God tells him in chapter 2 that the vision will have an end. It will not tarry long. Then we go to Zephaniah, which in chapter 1 describes a financial collapse 
there has been a financial collapse in the greater church of God. Uh, look at worldwide. They did away with tithing and said that we know you people are love God so much you'll probably give even more than a tithe. But there was a financial crash and it's been going downhill ever since. And now they're trying to sell off whatever assets they still have left, pack them up in their bag, and disappear into the night, it appears. And we have the same type of financial crash that is going to come upon this physical nation of Israel. Um, and that is described of a great crashing uh, in Zephaniah 1. And it talks about the voice of the day of the Lord in verse 14. So this is a crash right at the end, just as... Uh, the tribulation is about to descend upon the world. And he tells God's people in chapter 2 to gather yourselves together. Yes, gather together, O nation that is not desirable. We are not and have not been desirable to God for some time because we've drifted spiritually. And he says to do this before the decree bring forth, before the day passes the chaff, before the fierce anger of the eternal come upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger come upon you. So here again is the setting of the minor prophets. Seek you the eternal, all you meek of the earth, which have wrought his judgment. Seek righteousness, seek meekness. It may be you shall be hid in the day of the eternal's anger. That ties together very well with Matthew 24, which tells us that we might be accounted worthy to escape and that we should be praying toward that end. Then it talks about destruction over the nation. Uh, 3, verse 12 says, I will also leave in the midst of you an afflicted and poor, or better translated, meek and humble people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. Now this is not talking about physical Israel, because they don't trust in God, and have not and will not until the tribulation is over and the millennium begins. And he tells us in verse 14, Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all the heart, O daughter of Jerusalem, and shows that God will take care of us. We're not to fear, verse 16, but to work. And that is picked up in the book of Haggai where he says the latter temple is to be built. So, right along with the destruction of this physical nation comes the regeneration of God's church, his remnant. Now, to understand prophecy, you need to understand it in the light of history. And it is no coincidence that Babylon fell shortly before the Jews left for Jerusalem to rebuild the temple in Ezra. It was in the first year of Cyrus that this occurred, according to Ezra 1. Cyrus, having conquered Babylon and then almost immediately releasing the Jews, and probably at the Council of Daniel, who told Cyrus of the prophecies about himself, written approximately 140 to 150 years prior to the actual events. So, Daniel is an end-time prophecy along with Haggai and Zechariah. And it will be no coincidence that the latter temple will be rebuilt just before, during, or immediately after the fall of a modern type of Babylon, the United States. As Daniel was involved in the original government of both Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar and the Persians under Cyrus, so will the fall of this modern Babylon occur, connected in time with the rise of the latter temple and the end of the age as proclaimed by Daniel. As these events unfold, the precise meaning of Daniel's prophecies about the politics of the end-time empires will also likely unfold, culminating in the return of Jesus Christ. So Haggai then 
in this same time setting, describes a remnant church being rebuilt out of the debris of the former temple under Herbert Armstrong. This is under Zerubbabel and Joshua, who are identified in Zechariah 4 as the two sons of oil of Revelation 11, the final two witnesses of God, along with the remnant church, which is also a part of that witness. Isaiah 43 talks about this. I'll turn back to that. Isaiah 43 where he mentioned several times, you are my witnesses. And he says in verse five or verse 1, Fear not, again in verse 5, Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your seed from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, Give up, and to the south, Keep not back. Bring my sons from far and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Well, his sons and daughters, spiritually speaking, are the church. Even everyone that is called by my name. Now, this isn't physical Israel as yet, not until the millennium. But those who are called by, na- by his name are those called out ones of the church. For I have created him, created him for my glory. I have formed him. Yes, I have made him. Bring forth the blind people that have eyes and the deaf that have ears. Uh, and then he says, Uh, let them hear and say in the end of verse 9 it is truth well who is going to say it is truth other than God's people his church you are my witnesses says the eternal and my servant whom I have chosen so God is going to choose a servant to lead us and we then are his witnesses it's not just the work of two men but the work of the remnant church along with the two witnesses that he appoints he says again in verse 12 that you are my witnesses And speaking of that same remnant, he says in verse 21, This people have I formed for myself, they shall show forth my praise. That's certainly not talking about physical Israel. Not until way on later uh, into the millennium. So the two latter-day temples are tied together in time element by Haggai 2.3, where it says, Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? And how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it is nothing? So the latter temple that Haggai is talking about is going to far outshine that which was built under Herbert Armstrong, the former temple. And the way this is tied together in time is that Haggai is an end-time book, and there are going to be people old enough to have seen Worldwide Church of God at the height of its glory, and the latter temple at the height of its glory prior to Christ returning, of course, and make the comparison and show that the latter temple is far richer spiritually and stronger than the, than the former temple was that we saw destroyed because of Laodiceanism. I say saw destroyed, we're still seeing it destroyed, and it isn't over yet. Now, going on past Haggai, Zechariah shows the time element in terms of the church escaping from Babylon after 70 years of being under its grip, living in the midst of it. From the, form, from the institution of the former temple under Herbert Armstrong until now is very close to 70 years from any time in his early history we wish to count. Some dates have already come and gone, so perhaps this has to do with when the church was formally organized in 1933 or 4. I don't know, but it appears to be very close because it's been approximately 70 years since Herbert Armstrong was called and began a work. Haggai and Zechariah have very little to do with physical Israel, both being specific prophecies of the work surrounding the latter-day work of the remnant church under Joshua and Zerubbabel, the two witnesses. That becomes very clear. Uh, 
Only once the latter temple is established do the witnesses then turn to the world with a final witness. Revelation 11 gives them specific instruction to measure the temple of God first, leaving out the court of the Gentiles until afterward. Only later in the chapter do they begin the witness to the world in an incredibly powerful fashion, with signs and wonders, water turned to blood, various plagues so often as they will, and even fire from their mouths destroying any who would harm them. At this point, we have seen the first dominion given to the daughter of Zion, the latter temple, begin to spread out to encompass the whole world with her message. Then is when it appears they will rise and thresh the Assyrian who comes into our land, including the seven shepherds and eight principal men of Micah 5 and Isaiah 41. Notice that we are still in our land to be able to face off with the intruding Assyrians. We have not run off to China or the Middle East. Therefore, if the candle of the latter temple is set on a hill as a witness to the world, it will be here, the U.S. and Canada, where the church, or 90% plus of spiritual Israel the church is, where our land is, and where a majority of physical Israel also resides today. Now we can probably deduce from this that a place of safety, safety will be provided in our land for those accounted worthy to escape, and that it will be from there that we make confrontation with the Assyrian. That is, the Confederacy of Nations is designated in Psalm 83 and Isaiah 8 sent to destroy modern-day Israel, which is also a type of Babylon. So our nations, the nations of physical Israel, get double condemnation. We get condemnation as rebellious Israelites, and secondarily, as a people converted to the Babylonian system whores and idolaters from God who followed the ways of this world and the Babylonian system and then distributed it around the world as American culture. So while Haggai gives the instruction to build the temple and gives some detail, Zechariah gives much more. It gives details about the leaders, their specific jobs with the church, uh, how Jerusalem, the code word for the church, as per Hebrews 12, 22 through 23, will be rebuilt, and he talks about it being rebuilt as towns without walls in uh, Zechariah 2. Uh, I'll read that. Verse 4, And said to him, Run, speak to this young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls for the multitude of men and cattle therein. For I, says the Eternal, will be unto her a wall of fire round about and will be the glory in the midst of her. This isn't talking about the New Jerusalem after Christ returns. This is talking about towns that are not defensed, that have men and cattle therein, so it's still physical, and I doubt that there will be cattle in the New Jerusalem. For I, says the Eternal, will be under a wall of fire round about, and will be the glory in the midst of her. And then it talks about us fleeing. Uh, oh, verse 7, Deliver yourself, O Zion, that dwell with the daughter of Babylon. And... The context, again, is in verse 13, is be silent, O all flesh, before the eternal, for he is raised up out of his holy habitation. In other words, Christ is rising to begin the events that will culminate in the day of the Lord and his return. So this isn't during the millennium. This is before, when Jerusalem or the church is rebuilt as towns without walls. Uh, you can see this also back in uh, Isaiah 4. Isaiah 4, well I flipped right past it, uh, 
And in that day, seven women shall take hold of one man, so all the churches are going to latch on to one man, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own apparel, only let us be called by your name to take away our reproach. So the churches are going to be demolished and destroyed, and they will all then, or at least the remnant of them, take hold of one man. Uh, verse 3. Well, let's see. In that day shall the branch of the Lord be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth, verse 2, shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel. And it shall come to pass that he that is left in Zion, and he that remains in Jerusalem, shall be called holy, even every one that is written among the living in Jerusalem. So the church is basically going to die, but there will be some left alive. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion, so he, t he talks about plural here, the daughters of Zion, and shall have purged the blood of Jerusalem from the midst thereof by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning. And that judgment and burning is occurring in the church today upon all the daughters of Zion. And the Lord will create upon every dwelling place of Mount Zion and upon her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day and, by, and the shining of a flaming fire by night for upon all the glory shall be a defense. So he himself will be the defense. And this is referring to the same time that Zechariah 2 is, that God will have to protect his church. And there shall be a tabernacle for a shadow in the daytime from the heat, and for a place of refuge, or a place of safety, and for a covert from storm and from rain. So God is going to carefully prepare a place, and probably already has, for his people, and Christ himself will be there to be a wall of fire around her, a covert over her, to take care of her and protect her through these dangerous times that are just ahead. Now, Zechariah 7 through 8 gives specific instruction to those candidates for the latter temple. Notice in chapter 8, verse 9, we've already covered this in a past sermon, but I wanted to reset the, the stage here. Chapter 8, verse 9. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Let your hands be strong, you that hear in these days, these words by the mouth of the prophets, which were in the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built. So these prophecies have to do, right here at the end, with these prophecies about the temple. For before these days there was no hire for man, nor any hire for beast. Neither was there any peace to him that went out or came in because of the affliction. For I set, God set, all men, every one, against his neighbor. So what we are seeing in the church today, and remember Zechariah is a prophecy about the church, essentially, and doesn't, doesn't deal with the return of Christ, really, until Zechariah 14. So this time, right now, is where God has set people against one another, and there is famine, no hire for man or beast. But now I will not be to the residue, or the remnant of this people, as in the former days, says the Eternal of Hosts. For the seed shall be prosperous, the vine shall give her fruit, and the ground shall give her increase, and the heavens shall give their dew, and I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. So once the remnant church, the latter temple, is put together by the two witnesses, God is going to give blessing like never before. And it shall come to pass that as you were a curse among the heathen, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you, and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. This factor of fear will not even be involved, you see, in the millennium when Christ is here, because this is not talking about that time. This is talking about a time when there is still fear. The 
events of the end time have not yet fallen upon us. Then he gives us instruction in verse 16. These are the things that you shall do. Speak you every man the truth to his neighbor. Execute the judgment of truth and peace. So the concentration right now in the church should be finding truth and making true judgment and peace in our gates. He says there in in Haggai 1 that in this place will I bring peace, speaking of the latter temple. And let none of you imagine evil in your hearts against his neighbor, and love no false oath, for all these are things that I hate, says the Eternal. So we had better be very, very careful about throwing rocks at our neighbors, that is, other churches, other peoples, who are the people of God. And he says at the end of verse 19, to love the truth and peace. And the time will come then, once this temple starts coming together, that the true spiritual Jew will come to the fore, and people will then begin to say, as it talks about in verse 23, that they will take hold of the skirt of him that is a true Jew. Revelation 3.9, remember, says that there will come among us those who say they are Jews but are not. And we had those come in uh, who were Edomites and destroyed the church. They weren't true people of God. But the true Jew here, the true spiritual Israelite, people will take hold of and say, we will go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. So wherever this latter temple is, God says he will stir the people up and they will come in the book of Haggai. And that's exactly what's being talked about here at the end of chapter 8. So we have here the time of the scattering of the church and the beginning of the rebuilding of the latter temple and instruction for those who would be a part of that if they do what they are supposed to do. Now, with that background and setting, let's proceed to Zechariah 9. Zechariah 9, verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord. Now, what is the burden here? A burden is the prospect of doom and destruction. God's eyes will be upon the peoples listed below this verse for their destruction. Their eyes will be toward the Lord, it says here in the King James, but it it isn't really a good translation. It says, When the eyes of man as of all the tribes of Israel shall be toward the eternal. It doesn't mean when they look to him for guidance and help. Remember, the setting here is doom and destruction. So they'll all turn their eyes to God in fear. Remember, Revelation and various places in the prophecies talk about how they will run for the rocks and the caves and try to hide from him. So this is the beginning of the time when God is going to begin to punish this world and the peoples in it. And he names some specific ones here, which we'll find very interesting as we go on. So this is a burden when God begins to cause destruction and doom, and everyone will look upon him with fear. Uh, And Hamath, that is a city in Syria, also shall border thereby Tyre, and Tyre means a rock or a place in Palestine, and Zidon, which is a city about 20 miles from modern-day Tyre, which is today in Lebanon. Though it be very wise, uh, Zidon is a fishery and a son of Canaan, according to the Bible dictionaries. So these are cities and places that were part of the original uh, promised land that Israel went into, and people inhabited them who were Canaanites, Philistines, Hivites, Amorites, and so on. 
and then they later on became Israelite cities because Israel drove these people's, uh, people out. They were supposed to destroy them completely and or drive them out and they didn't do a very good job of, of either of those and they became pestilential to Israel and are to this day. And Tyre did build herself a stronghold. Tyre was a city that had a very strong defensive structure on the shore and then was an island about a half mile off the shore and heaped up silver as the dust and fine gold as the mire of the streets. So she was also a financial center. Um, now verses 5 and 6 extend this burden to Ashkelon, to Gaza, to Ekron, and to Ashdod. Now these were also Palestinian or Canaanite cities uh, along the coasts of Israel. Now today, Tyre is a mere village of about 5,000 and is of absolutely no consequence on the world scene. These other cities <coughs> are now towns along the present-day coast of Middle East Israel and are also of little consequence. So what do they have to do with this end-time prophecy we're reading about the church and present-day Israel? Now let's consider some things here. The United States is the undisputed leader of present-day Israel. All the other tribes look to us, those in Western Europe and Britain and so on. The same is true of spiritual Israel, the church, located mostly in North America. Now the church has fallen and is still falling, and physical Israel is about to follow suit. Consider that there is some evidence that remnants, remnants of the Canaanite and Philistine populations along with Amorites, Hittites, and other traditional enemies of Israel, moved out of Palestine, migrated across Europe ahead of Israel, crossed the Atlantic, and then resided in the land that would later be included in the promises to Abraham, North America. They were here to be defeated again when we took this land as part of our latter-day inheritance. Some of the northern tribes, such as the Eskimos, have obvious roots in Asia and bear the physiognomy of Asian genes. The American and Canadian Indians have a different appearance. Some of you have read Stephen Collins' book, uh, The Ten Lost Tribes of Israel Found, and in that book he makes a very good case for King David's men mining in North America uh, during the days of King David and Solomon. Las Lunas, New Mexico has a rock with the Ten Commandments inscribed on it in the Hebrew of that day. So David was, David's men were here. He even makes a pretty good case in there for Christ having been here during the time uh, before he started his ministry. So it is no stretch of the imagination that the peoples of that land migrated here and had to be defeated again just as they were in the original promised land. So could it be that these small villages we just read about in chapter 9 of Zechariah Uh, represent coastal cities of modern Israel and the USA today. There have been comparisons of ancient Tyre with modern New York City. Both were, or are, island cities. And if you look at a map that compare, two maps that compare these two, they bear a startling resemblance. New York is also our financial center 
as we read in verse 3, Tyrus had, had heaped up silver as the dust and fine gold as the mire of the streets. Well, where do we see that kind of money and wealth and stock market increase today? It's in New York City. So is New York City a type of the ancient Tyre that is a coastal city now of Israel? Very possible. So Israel's enemies were there before her, and they still surround her. And it says in Isaiah 8 and Psalm 83 and various other places that there will be an assembly of nations led by Assyria who will destroy us. And it appears that those types from the Middle East have been moved to modern Israel today. Now let's go on to verse 6. And a bastard shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. Now what does this mean in this light? Let me read this from some other translations. Uh, Zechariah 9 9 and verse 6. A mongrel people shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will make an end of the pride of Philistia. That's from the RSV. And strangers shall dwell, and a mixed people. Uh, A half-breed race shall rule in Ashdod from Moffat. And the baseborn shall occupy Ashdod from the NAB translation. And from Tay, uh, it says foreigners will take over the city of Ashdod. So Ashdod was the city of the Philistines originally, and if these represent the coastal cities of today, a group of nations are going to take them and take over and dwell where Israel was given the promised land. And certainly North America, as we understand, and Great Britain are Ephraim and Manasseh of today. So, even in the middle of the rebuilding of the latter temple here, we find that God begins to talk about the destruction of the physical nation right on top of it. So our parallel view that we've been using in this explanation of the minor prophets seems to fit very well right here. We're right in the context of the church being built, and yet it starts talking about modern-day Israel, apparently, and I think that's where the types fit, being destroyed right around our ears just as Babylon was destroyed as Israel came out to build the latter temple or to build the temple uh, in Jerusalem when they came out of the Babylonian captivity same 70 years that they went through we have been going through in the midst of Babylon under Herbert Armstrong and since his demise now to verse 7 and I will take away his blood out of his mouth and his abominations from between his teeth But he that remains, even he, shall be for our God, and shall be as a governor in Judah, and Ekron as a Jebusite. Now I'd like to read this and some other translations as well, because it doesn't make a lot of sense to me in, in the King James language. Here's what Moffat says. So I stopped them from drinking blood, from eating food detestable. He starts to cut off the sin of our peoples in this modern nation of Israel. Will our modern coastal cities be taken over by Gentiles and mongrel races? Have they already begun to be so? Is the Israelite disappearing today? Has the Gentile gotten himself up high above us, taking over in more or less peaceful ways, but then in sudden destruction? The RSV translates verse 7, I will take away his blood out of his mouth and his abominations from between his teeth 
But he that remains, even he, shall be for our God, and he shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron as a Zebusite. That is, those who are left, once our physical promised land of America, North America, Britain, and so on are destroyed, those who are left will finally repent as they go through the tribulation and into the millennium. Living Prophecies translates it, I will yank her idolatry out of her mouth and pull from from her teeth her sacrifices that she eats with blood. wonder if that means abortions. Everyone left will worship God and be adopted into Israel, into Israel as a new clan. The Philistines of Ekron will intermarry with the Jews just as the Jebusites so long ago. So God is going to get idolatry and sin out of our physical nation and take those idolatrous ways away from us and then everyone who is left when this is done, only a remnant of physical Israel, will repent in the millennium. And the same thing is happening in the church. God is destroying it, and those who are left, the faithful remnant, will repent and will be a part of the latter temple. So you have the same parallel here. Now chapter 9 and verse 8, And I will encamp about my house. What is his house? His latter temple. Because of the army, because of him that passes by, and because of him that returns. And no oppressor shall pass through them any more, for now I have I seen with my eyes. So, during this destruction of our physical nations, Christ says he will encamp about his house. That ties in with what we just read in Zechariah 2 about him being a wall of fire around small towns of Jerusalem, of the church. And in Isaiah 4, the same thing, as a covert from the storm and from the warriors around us. So we're on the same time setting and exactly the same story is being laid out here. He says in verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Not daughters here, but daughter, that remnant which is left. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king comes to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. And I wonder if this doesn't have something to do uh, not only with his riding the donkey into Jerusalem in his first stay on this earth, because he came not then as a powerful warrior to subdue the earth. He came as one with a message for his church, primarily first, his disciples and apostles, to start the New Testament church, and only secondarily to those multitudes who came for healing and to listen. Remember, the Sermon on the Mount was given to his disciples, and later on, a mob, be- or not a mob, but a, a group of people began to form there. But the instruction was directed at his disciples. And I wonder if that might not be true here again, that Christ will come to his church, to his remnant people, he will be a wall of fire around them, and he won't be coming as king of king and lord of lords at that point, but he will be there to protect and help and be gentle with his end-time church as he puts it back together. Whether he will physically appear... Uh, we won't speculate on here, but he will be there as a covert and a wall of fire for sure, and later on come at the last trump to raise her if she is dead, or those who are dead, and those who are alive and remain at his second coming. So maybe he comes to her in much the same way that he came to uh, his disciples in the early New Testament church when he formed it before the final return. So he's going to encamp about his people. 
Now let's notice how the prophecies of Isaiah fit together so well uh, with Zechariah 9. I want to go back to notice to Isaiah 7. We'll take a real quick survey here of these chapters because they talk about the very same things that Zechariah is addressing in just one chapter. Uh, if you go back to Isaiah 7, it talks about conspiracies and Ephraim being broken. Uh, chapter 8 talks about a conspiracy and a confederacy. We've gone through these before, so I'm not going to take a lot of time here. He tells those who are his disciples in verse 16 not to fear that God will show signs and wonders uh, in Israel from the Lord of hosts, which dwells in Mount Zion. So Christ is going to be with his people, his church, Jerusalem and Zion. He's going to do signs and wonders, and we see from other scriptures that that has to do with the two witnesses and the end-time witness of the latter temple. Not just those two, but the entire latter temple. So he says, don't fear the confederacy, the conspiracy, that those people who are coming to destroy, but fear him. And only those who are part of his church are those who will fear him in the right way. Um, then he goes on down and begins, well, he begins the book of Isaiah, first of all, with a burden against Judah and Jerusalem, and in later chapters of Isaiah, he includes all of Israel uh, at places in the book, including our mess in spiritual Israel and the mess in physical Israel. And then this conspiracy against the church in Israel in chapter 8, uh, Assyria is designated as the destroyer in chapter 10, verse 5, says, O Assyrian, the rod of my anger... And the staff in their hand is my indignation. I will send him against an hypocritical nation. We say we're a nation of God, but we're not by any means. And against the people of my wrath will I give him a charge. Who did he ad address here in this book? Uh, his people Israel. Then we move on to chapter 11, which is a preview of Christ coming. And he, perhaps even uh, of Zerubbabel, who is a type of Christ, who will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth, verse 12. He's, going, he's showing peace here in the latter temple. And then, of course, it talks about Jesus Christ himself who will be here and bring peace in the millennium. So, a preview of Christ's return. And then in chapter 13, you continue right on with the burdens against various peoples. Uh, chapter 13 is a burden against Babylon and how um, they will be destroyed. And verse 6 talks about the day of the Lord is at hand. So this destruction of Babylon is at the end. Babylon, or ancient Babylon, is nothing today. It amounts to nothing. Saddam Hussein is trying to build a resort there and attract tourists, I guess, but there's nothing there. And this is a major prophecy against a huge empire. So it doesn't have to do with ancient Babylon. It has to do with people who exist today. Chapter 15, and that, that continues through 14 and talks about Satan who is the king of Babylon, ultimately. Uh, chapter 15 is the burden of Moab, or Ammon and Moab, uh, who were Arabic peoples, basically. Uh, they also will be destroyed. And in chapter 16, it talks about, in verse 4, Let my outcast dwell with you, Moab. Be you a covert to them from the face of the spoiler. For the extortioner is at an end, the spoiler ceases, the oppressors are consumed out of the land, and so on and so forth. So Moab is to protect God's people. 
I wonder if there are Moabites in our land today. Has the type there moved as well? Because the, inst- the instruction in uh, Micah 5 is very clear that we're to stay in our own land. Chapter 19 is a burden against Egypt, another traditional enemy of Israel. Chapter 21 is the burden of the desert of the sea, or of many peoples. The sea is listed as a type of peoples in Revelation and other places. So many people combined are also going to incur the wrath of God. Uh, Chapter 22, the burden of the valley of of, uh, vision. In verse 4 it says, Therefore said I, Look away from me, I will weep bitterly. Labor not to comfort me because of the spoiling of the daughter of my people. For it is a day of trouble and of treading down. So the Valley of Vision has to do with um, with Israel. Uh, chapter 23, here's a whole chapter, the burden of Tyre. Well, Tyre is just that little village of 5,000 people in Lebanon today. Why would there be a major prophecy about Tyre being destroyed here at the end? It talks about their merchants being princes, a crowning city, whose traffickers are the honorable of the earth. In verse 8, the Lord of hosts has purposed it to stain the pride of all glory, to bring into contempt all the honorable of the earth. This is an end-time prophecy. Well, where do you have people who are honored by the whole earth today? you got it in New York City. You have it in the merchant city, verse 11, to destroy the strongholds thereof. So, now we go on to about chapter 24 behold the Lord makes the earth empty and makes it waste and turns it upside down and scatters abroad the inhabitants thereof so this prophecy begins to encompass the whole earth and this whole chapter talks about few men left and the earth reeling to and fro like a drunkard in verse 20 the earth being utterly broken down in verse 19 Verse 21, And shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall punish the host of the high ones that are on earth and the kings of the earth upon the earth. Then the moon, verse 23, shall be confounded and the sun ashamed when the Lord of hosts shall reign in Mount Zion and Jerusalem and before his ancients uh, gloriously. So this culminates in the return of Jesus Christ to this earth. Chapter 25, verse 8. He will swallow up death in victory. When does that come? First resurrection. First Corinthians 15, 50 through 51. And the Lord God will wipe away all tears from off all faces. And the rebuke of his people shall he take away from off all the earth. For the Lord has spoken it. So he pronounces all these burdens against all these different peoples. And says it will culminate in him ruling on the earth. And the tears be taken away. And a resurrection occurring. So chapters 25 and 26 show that all of this destruction will be followed by repentance and blessing. Now he talks to the church in here in an inset specifically. Chapter 26, verse 17. Like as a woman with child that draws near the time of her delivery is in pain and cries out in her pangs, so have we been in in your sight, O Lord. Now this reminds you of Micah 4.10 where he tells us there to be in pain and be delivered and he's talking about the time when the Assyrian is about to come in our land and he will deliver us as we move into the fields and villages and away from the midst of Babylon so it's the same setting that he's talking about to the daughter of Zion there being in pain now notice verse 18 we have been with child we have been in pain we have as it were brought forth wind 
Now hasn't the church been trying to make a delivery to become the son or produce the son or sons that Christ wants in his kingdom as a bride for himself? But we've brought nothing but wind forth. Nothing has been born. In fact, we're in trouble and in great pain as a church. We have been with child, we have been in pain and brought forth wind. We have not wrought any deliverance in the earth, so the church hasn't been delivered. The church is still out in the middle of it. Neither have the inhabitants of the world fallen. So we're in this interim period right now, with the death of Herbert Armstrong and the lack of leadership since. We've been trying to bring forth something and have brought forth nothing. Uh, and the inhabitants of the world have not yet fallen. So all these prophecies are culminating at the same time that the latter church is trying to bring forth. Your dead men shall live, together with my dead body shall they arise. Awake and sing, you that dwell in dust, for your dew is as the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. So he's talking about the time just prior to the day of the Lord and the resurrection of the just. And he tells his church then, Come, my people, enter you into your chambers, and shut your doors about you, Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation be overpassed. Now this is reminiscent again of Zechariah 2 where he tells us to flee from the land of the north and that he will protect us. Um, So, as these things are about to come upon us and the inhabitants of the world have yet to fall, it's time for God's people then to enter into their chambers, wherever those are, and to shut the doors and to hide ourselves. So the context here of the day of the Lord and the end of the age is the same as Zechariah 9 and the same as the first part of Zechariah where it talks about rebuilding the latter temple and fleeing from this world and the plagues that are about to come upon it. Chapter 27, 13 there shows again the timing. It talks about the great trumpet shall be blown. Now let's go back to Zechariah 9. Zechariah 9. So even as this destruction is about to come upon the cities of Israel, he says in verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king comes to you. He is just and has salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off And he shall speak peace to the heathen, and his dominion shall be from sea even to sea, and from the river even to the ends of the earth. So when he begins to intervene this time, he's going to see it through. And everyone who fights against Ephraim will be cut off ultimately. Verse 11, As for you also, by the blood of your covenant, Christ's sacrifice, giving us a new covenant, I have sent forth your prisoners out of the pit wherein is no water. Now notice the context here is the same as we just read in Isaiah 26. Turn you to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. We go to the stronghold that God is setting up for us because we have this hope. Even today do I declare that I will render double to you. When I have bent Judah for me, filled the bow with Ephraim, and raised up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece. So there is going to be a confrontation between the Greek, that is, those Gentiles, and the sons of Zion, or the church of God, and made you as the sword of a mighty man. And the two witnesses then are going to turn 
uh, with their witness against this world in a confrontation that this world cannot and will not win. Uh, oh yes, they'll be killed right at the end of this thing, but it's only three and a half days then until Christ returns and they are resurrected and this world then is put down completely and totally by Christ himself. And the Lord shall be seen over them and his arrow shall go forth as the lightning and the Lord God shall blow the trumpet and shall go with whirlwinds of the south. So this gathering and going to the stronghold in hope is going to turn out with Christ coming forth as lightning and being seen over them as a covert by day. And the Lord of hosts shall defend them and they shall devour and subdue with sling stones and they shall drink and make a noise as through wine and they shall be filled like bowls and as the corners of the altar. Um, and the Lord their God shall save them in that day as the flock of his people. So he's not talking about Israel as a whole here but still the context is about the church for they shall be as the stones of a crown lifted up as an ensign upon his land what are the first fruits given they're given crowns in Revelation 3 2 and 3 it goes through in the message to the churches there and shows the different rewards that will come and he talks about us being the gems and, and, and the gemstones there in Micah 3 or 4 when he makes up his his people for they shall be as the stones of a crown lifted up as an ensign upon his land. Uh, let's tie in Isaiah 62.3 there right quickly. Isaiah 62.3 You also shall be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of my God. You shall no more be termed forsaken neither shall your land any more be termed desolate and so on. And it talks about the bride of Christ there. So he, his people will be taken to safety, there they will be protected, and there they will be blessed. Notice verse 17. For how great is his goodness, and how great is his beauty. Corn shall make the young men cheerful, and new wine the maids. You can tie in uh, quite a few scriptures there from uh, Isaiah 54 and Isaiah 55 when the blessings do begin to return to God's church in the form of the latter temple. So I think we're probably that's a natural place to break, but I wanted to show how Zechariah 9 is beginning to parallel very closely what is happening between the church and physical Israel. These parallels we've been talking about are on a collision course, so to speak. And the church is going to have to be taken out just as physical Israel begins to have the same kind of de de uh, devastation that the church has experienced on a spiritual level uh, we get delivered first, and then physical Israel gets delivered at the end of the tribulation. But Zechariah, Haggai and Zechariah, are dealing almost totally with the church here, and only in chapter 9 then is the destruction of the physical uh, peoples uh, talked about, and us getting away from it, lest we be destroyed along with physical Israel. So we'll close then at the end of chapter 9 and pick it up in chapter 10 next time, God willing.